Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for songs that sound great during a corndog roast. We are going to start this episode off with a little bit of trivia. All right, the first trivia round is going to be mine. It will be an audio round. I am going to play five clips of music from supergroups. Okay. You should be able to, most people should be able to name most of the members in the supergroup. Otherwise, it's just kind of an adequate group, not super. <laughs> above average group? And above, maybe. Supergroups are rarely above average. <laughs> For this one, I'm going to play five clips, and what I would like to have you do, and everybody at home, name at least three of the members in the band that is playing in the clip, and the name of the song, if you have it. Okay, so you're going to play a supergroup, I name at least three members, and then the song, if I've got it. Yes. Okay. All right, here we go. Track one. Just like a flower. Just five today, Ooh. and it's been a while since we've done trivia. So, how do you think you did on our return to trivia? Not great, Joe. I do not think I did good. 
I've got one, I think, pretty much locked up and maybe another. And then there's a couple. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. Maybe I'll maybe sometime in the future I'll the answers will be beamed down to me before the end of the show. I was expecting you to get at least three. Ooh. I I might get three. Okay. I'll get parts of three of them at least. All right, I hope everybody at home beats Ryan. We'll play these clips again at the end of the show and we'll have answers immediately after that. And see, I'm I was, you know, since since we hadn't done trivia in so long, I've really made up what I thought is an easy quiz for you, but we'll, we'll see. So my quiz is called Super Group Therapy. I'm going to list several members of a made-up supergroup, a group I made up, and you're going to mash the band names together to tell me the name of my supergroup. So I'll list two, three, or four artists, and then you combine the names of their original bands to make this new supergroup. Are you ready? I think so. I'm not sure. Okay. No, I'm not. All right, we'll go. Yeah, you, go ahead. You got it. It's right. easy. Okay. All right. Ron Ashton, Iggy Pop, and Placido Domingo. The Three Stooges? The Three Stooges. Very good. I was starting you off with the easiest one. All right, here we go. David Gedge, Peter Slowaka, Tracy Pugh, and Nick Cave. Can you, can you go? Th- sure. Yeah, one more time. David Gedge, Peter Slowaka, Tracy Pugh and Nick Cave. And when you're listing these, is each person from a different supergroup? Nope. Nope. It will always be two groups. The Wedding Seeds or the nope. Bad Present? Nope. Keep going. Okay. The Birthday Present? The Birthday Present. Thank there you, you go. Okay. The, okay. okay. I, was, then it I was knew you were there. The Wedding Next Door. The Wedding Seeds is a pretty good name, mm-hmm. though. All right. You ready? <laughs> sure. Lindsay Buckingham, Christine McVie, and Richard Cheese. I don't remember the Richard Cheese name of his band. Don't overthink it. Okay. Fleetwood Cheese. Cheese and Mac, mac and Cheese. Mac and Cheese. There you go. Very good. I couldn't... <laughs> there's, no, there's not many band names named Cheese. So... No. At least I couldn't think of any. Okay, you ready? Yes. Chris Bell, Alex Chilton, and Dan Behar. The Big Pornographers? Nope. Close. The New Star? Nope. Porn Stars? (laughs) What's Dan Behar's other band? Destroyer. So put it together. Star Destroy. Oh, Star Destroyer. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's Star really Destroyer. good. Star Destroyer. Yep. That's great. Yep. Good one. Okay, this is the one. There's a couple here. I'm not. I, I, you may not get. We'll give it a try. Sterling Morrison, Mo Tucker, Don Brewer, and Mark Farner. Brewer and Farner. That's what I'm having some trouble with. Mark. Yep. Farner. I don't know. Okay. Don Brewer and Mark Farner are part of Grand Funk Railroad. Okay. So it's Velvet Railroad or Grand Funk Underground? How about the Velvet Underground Railroad? 
Very good. That's much right. better. Okay. I think you're going to get this one. We've talked about this. Okay. Katie Crutchfield and Kathleen Hanna. This one I think I have. So Waxahachie and... Why am I blanking on it? Amanda wears a bag from that band. Yep, she went Bikini to see a show. Kill. Yeah, yep. Bikini Kill and Waxahachie. Is it a bikini wax? <laughs> bikini wax. <laughs> uh, some of these bands I would really like to see. Man, I can't believe I didn't get Mark Farner. Uh, you're okay. There's, all right, let's see how you do with this one. I'm worried about half of this one, too. Okay. Black Francis, Joey Santiago, and Dennis DeYoung. Pixie Sticks. Very good. Good job. Okay. Jeff Mangum and John Darnielle. Neutral Milk Hotel and Mountain Goats. Okay. Goat Milk? Goat Milk. Very good. Man, these right. are great. Why haven't you been doing this one for I don't know. years? I don't know. Okay. This might be my favorite. Alan Sparhawk, Mimi Parker, Ira Kaplan, and Georgia Hubley. Lola Tango? Close. Yolo Tango? (laughs) Very good. Yolo. (laughs) Uh, The thing about it is you're not going to want a Yolo once you hear that band. It'd be a really good band. Oh, I'd love it. Uh, Several of these I would legitimately enjoy, I think. The birthday present, I think, would be great. Yes. Okay. This is the last one. Dagmar Krause, Fred Frith, Ralph Hutter, and Florian Schneider. So that was either Slap Happy or Henry Cow. Henry Cow, not Slap Happy. So Henry... Keep going. Keep going. Oh, okay. Okay. Hold on. It is Art Bears and... What were the names of the other band? Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider. I can't. Florian Schneider should should be a giveaway, but I don't have it. They're German. Einsterzundenaubatenbergs? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider are the founders of Kraftwerk. So artwork? Nope. Well, that would have worked, I guess. Right? That was not what I was thinking. Then it would have been... Arts and crafts. Arts and crafts. Okay, that's <laughs> wow. That's really good. Uh, the Flo- I can't believe some of those are throwing me off. The Mark Farner and the Florian were ones I should have gotten. Yeah, you did. You did pretty good. It's that's, that was fun. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed making them. It took me. I got two or three right away, and then I had to kind of push myself for some of the other one. But you did really well. That, that's a hard one. That was a delightful return to trivia. Yeah, we did good. Well, you did good. I'm not going to do so well, but. Uh, you'll be fine. You ready for turntable talk? Yes. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Many important life lessons were learned at my local 811. The convenience store in my hometown opened an hour later and closed once they got sued by the 7-Eleven. 
The lessons I still keep with me from those halcyon days are that there was different taxation on Cheetos and Mad Magazines. That pinball machines are bottomless quarter sucks. That candy cigarettes and Jolt Cola don't really make you as cool as you think you are. Oh, and the most maudlin of all, of course, Stranger Danger. And in this wealth of street knowledge came one more important aha moment as I stepped up to the soda fountain machine with my 44-ounce Super Big Gulp cup and started haphazardly filling it up with every available soda option. I think we called it a suicide or something. Taking that first sip, it tasted of sour apples, diabetes, and deep regret. The lesson learned is that sometimes the whole is actually less than the sum of its parts. Supergroups are kind of lazy. It's a lazy term for a band that consists of musicians who have already found success elsewhere. It's a lazy move for musicians who want to become relevant again or to make some money. It's a lazy means of promotion for record labels who can just plaster the faces of the band members on the cover. It's a lazy expectation for fans who are happy enough with artists resting on their collective laurels. However, in this laziness, intentions and expectations are in a strange dichotomy of being very low and being very high. A lot of weird stuff can happen. Egos rage. Fights can ensue. Chemical reactions that weren't expected. The rise of many of the most well-known supergroups is well-documented to a narcoleptic degree. Your creams, audio slaves, CSNYs, blind faiths, traveling Wilburys, and bad Englishes. We are not here today to bore you with those stories you probably know about already, and we don't have any interest in in the first place. No, we're going to take a different highway, like the podcasting highway men we are. We're going to look at the other end of the spectrum. Today we'll be covering the importance of groups that were supergroups, except that no one knew it yet. Groups with multiple members who would go on to greatness, but in the nascent stage were still unknowns. Bands that are sometimes called reverse supergroups. Totally opposite of the serendipitous accidents or the blatant money grabs of typical supergroups, proto-supergroups are full of drive, creativity, and unchecked enthusiasm. The powers that the band members yield may not yet be known, but it is a lot more fun to see collaborations between up-and-comers making the case that sometimes music is more important and more lasting when it is created before anybody was paying attention, rather than when it was made after people quit caring. Now before we start, we're going to lay down one caveat. We are not going to count groups that were notable on their own, even if their component members went on to much greater fame. So this would eliminate bands like the Yardbirds, the Runaways, Uncle Tupelo, you Wu-Tang Clan, Modern Lovers, NWA, and The Move. Joe and I both agree that these bands would stand on their own, even if no amazing bands or artists were excreted from them. We truly wanted to find bands that would mostly have been forgotten, if not for future success of multiple members separately.
By far the most notorious of the reverse supergroups is the Minor Birds, a band featuring Rick James and Neil Young before their meteoric rises. Of course, like most band mythologies, there is some difficulty in sussing out the exact truth about the band. Here's how the probable story goes. Musical savant James Johnson had been playing in bands around Buffalo for a couple years when he got his draft card in 1964. To avoid being drafted, he entered the Naval Reserves at the age of 15. He continued playing until the night after sitting in on drums with Thelonious Monk, he received the letter that he was being called up for active duty. Deciding that he might not be a fit for military life, Johnson deserted and fled north to Toronto. Looking for the nightlife, Johnson almost immediately got into a fist fight with some locals. But two brave hosers named Levon Helm and Garth Hudson from a band, not the band, playing a nearby club saved his Canadian bacon. They took Johnson into a bar, gave him a few drinks, and by the end of the night he was singing songs on stage. The guys were so impressed that they invited him to join a band which they called, no joke, the Sailor Boys. <laughs> the, the Sailor Boys was short-lived, but James Johnson, who is now going by Ricky James Matthews as a way to throw off any authorities, was quickly ingratiating himself to the Toronto music scene. The name would later be shortened to simply Rick James at the suggestion of faux-blind Stevie Wonder. James started spending a lot of time with Joni Mitchell, who wasn't yet a black pimp. James, who later would actually become a black pimp, said the relationship was, and I quote, not sexual, but musical as a motherfucker. Mitchell introduced him to a young, knuckle-dragging, shaky, ghoul-eyed guitar player named Neil Young, who had been touring the Great White North as a solo artist. James liked his Rolling Stone-esque swagger, and Young was invited to play with a band that James had recently started fronting called the Minor Birds. Though some non-Rick James sources state that Bruce Palmer was the one who invited Young into the band. The Minor Birds have been around in many variations for a couple years as a sort of garage R&B outfit. Some of the original members would eventually quit and get their motors running as Steppenwolf. With the classic James and Young lineup, the band started making things happen. Their shows were apparently pretty fantastic. Described in the Young biography Shaky by Jimmy McDonough, he said, In black leather jackets, yellow turtlenecks and boots, they had quite a surreal scene going. Those lucky enough to see any of the band's few gigs say they were electrifying. Neil would stop playing lead, do a harp solo, throw the harmonica way up in the air, and Ricky would catch it and continue the solo. Prior to Young's entry, they had a prospective single for Columbia Records in 1965, but it didn't go anywhere. However, the band had built enough of a presence that Motown Records decided to take a chance, signing them as the first mostly white band on the label. Originally, they were slated to put out a single called I've Got You In My Soul, but this never happened, probably because the song was almost certainly stolen from the song Little Girl by Van Morrison and them. Have a listen to both and you can decide. Teach 
undeterred, the band decided to record a song they had actually written called It's My Time and started working on putting together a full album. Around the same time, the band had fired their manager for misappropriating their Motown advance, and in retaliation, he told the label and whoever else would listen to him that James was AWOL from the Navy. James was arrested and served a year in the clink. The single was scrapped, becoming one of the great lost Motown singles, released only decades after. Neil Young and Bruce Palmer bought a green Buick hearse, loaded up their gear, crossed into the USA illegally, drove to California, and started Buffalo Springfield. Rick James did pretty well for himself, too, for a while. After getting out, he tried and failed to restart the Minor Birds on Motown. Then he also went to California and started playing in bands there. He eventually would re-sign with Motown as part of his punk-funk romp through the 70s and 80s like some kind of cocaine-fueled Forrest Gump, which provided an unending plethora of amazingly shocking tales, including, but not limited to, Bloody Noses on the American Bandstand, watching Jim Morrison self-harm, forcing Prince to guzzle cognac, demonically possessing Linda Blair, of whom James said, her head's not the only thing that swivels bestiality, and ruining a priceless Salvador Dali portrait hours after receiving it. Neil Young had his wild moments too, but often they involved toy trains. I, can't, I don't think I could think of a weirder pairing than Rick James and Neil Young. They seem like total polar opposites. Their song's pretty good, though. I really... Yeah, it is. They're more garagey than I thought they'd be. Rick James was a real rock and roll guy. Like, he was strutting on stage like Mick Jagger, it said. Yeah, apparently he really liked the Rolling Stones. He did not like Prince, though. There's a lot of stories about how he hated Prince. He thought Prince stole all his moves. Did he beat him at ping pong? He did not beat him at ping pong, but he did force him to guzzle cognac, like we said. How did that happen? (sighs) Something happened where... Rick James and Prince got into it because, like I said, Rick James thought Prince was stealing all his his moves. So they'd, they'd had all sorts of arguments, including one time where Rick James' mom, who's an autographed hound, ran into Prince backstage and Prince refused to sign an autograph for her, which is horrible. And so Rick James threatened to beat him up, and so he eventually signed the autograph. But they kind of had this thing where Rick James really kind of dominated him. And so, basically, Prince and his entourage showed up at a Rick James' birthday party. And Rick James is not happy about this. So Rick James says, hey, well, since you're here, we're all doing this. Just just sit down. And so he grabbed Prince's head and tipped over a bottle of cognac and made him chug cognac while he was holding his head, just forcing his head and just saying, we're all doing it, we're all doing it, we're having a good time. <laughs> they really did not like each other. Well, I come from Alabama, oh, it up and 
In 1962, Albert Grossman's folk band, Peter, Paul, and Mary, released their eponymous debut album, and it was a huge hit, staying in the top ten for ten months. Around the country, musicians were trying to put together folk trios in the hopes of being signed to record labels and cashing in. One such group, the Triumvirate, came together the same year after meeting at a Georgetown party. The band consisted of John Brown, Tim Rose, and Cass Elliott. For Rose, this would be his second band, his first, another reverse supergroup, The Smoothies, mm. consisted of himself, John Phillips, and Scott McKenzie, who had a big hit of his own with the song San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Some Flowers in Your Hair. The incest is strong with this group. Phillips and McKenzie left Rose behind and moved to the West Coast. As far as John Brown goes, who cares? For Cass Elliott, the triumvirate would be her first band, they did really well in coffee houses near the D.C. area and headed out on tour, supporting sweater-clad rapist Bill Cosby. One of their stops would be Omaha, Nebraska, where, for unknown reasons, Brown was left behind and replaced with native cornhusker Jim Hendrix. It was in Omaha that the band dropped the name The Triumvirate and switched to The Big Three. The band continued on their tour and over the following year recorded two studio albums, and appeared on 26 national TV shows. In 1963, Hendrix and Elliot quietly married. So quietly, in fact, that not even Rose knew about it. Upon finding out about the marriage, Rose promptly quit the band. Mommy, come and see Tim Rose was signed to CBS Records and released his self-titled debut album in 1967. On that album, Rose performed a version of Hey Joe that was much darker and slower than any previous version. According to Rose, he wrote the song himself and has made a lot of money from this lie. Jimi Hendrix, not Jim Hendrix from earlier, heard Rose's version when he played at New York City's Café Wa, and it was this version of the song that Hendrix used for his hit. On a similar but even slightly more unethical note, Rose claimed songwriting credit on his next hit, which was a much bigger hit called Morning Dew, which he also didn't write. The actual writer, Bonnie Dobson, didn't get any money for her work for decades because Tim Rose is an asshole. Hey, Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? I'm going to shoot my woman. I caught her with another man. Cass Elliot, however, isn't an asshole. 
by most accounts, in fact, she was an absolutely wonderful person who was hilarious, smart, and had one of the best singing voices of all time. After the breakup of the Big Three, she and husband Hendrix went on to form her second reverse supergroup, the Mugwumps, with Denny Doherty, John Sebastian, and Zal Yanofsky. The Mugwumps released one single in 1964 and a studio album in 1967 before calling it quits. Doherty and Elliot ended up, as we know, in The Mamas and the Papas, while Sebastian and Yanofsky moved on after the Mugwumps to form the Love and Spoonful, not to be confused with Bill Cosby's modus operandi. In 1988, alternative country was barely a thing. California had a small group of birds-loving stoner cowpunk bands that were transitioning away from the more aggressive twang towards psychedelia. Texas was starting to churn out a few electrified honky-tonk scorchers, and the Midwest was finding its footing merging roots music with college radio rock. In one of the more remote big cities in the West, there was a new sound forming, one that was darker, slower, and more exotic and surreal than those other cosmic country styles. The Denver sound is gothic Americana. Eschewing most electric instruments for traditional country and folk instruments, the Denver sound combined country music with influences from Eastern European folk music, Salvation Army jazz, tent revival, evangelist, and eerie gospel choirs. The brooding lyrics were less about drinking, shit-kicking, and loving, and more about existential doom, soul weariness, and Old Testament wrath. And the sound emanates from one single, nearly forgotten band. Jeffrey Paul Norlander and David Eugene Edwards formed the Denver Gentleman in 1988 with little preconceptions about how a country band should sound. Drawing inspiration from the darkest recesses of roots and folk music and gathering an eccentric collection of musicians and instruments, they created an unnerving reverberation. Founder Jeffrey Paul explains the sound as such. I don't know if what we made with the old versions of the band was sobering music, but it was really nervous. There was some sort of intelligent conflict going on that made it nervous. It was the same kind of thing that makes people stutter when they talk. The original Denver gentleman believed in the purposeful avoidance of ever playing a song the same way twice. Strings, accordions, glockenspiel, saws, and out-of-tune pianos would be added and deleted from songs that were being played in front of barely-filled clubs of inattentive, drunken revelers. The few people that paid attention during this short golden era were astounded at the bleak and bizarre sound. In 1991, the band found no quarter for their unique stylings on the East Coast or in Los Angeles and decided to return to their hometown of Denver. Soon after returning home, Edwards took his rare Kemitzer accordion off and formed 16 horsepower en route to finding an even wider renown with Wovenhand. Norlander continued for a while with a huge cast of backing players floating in and out of the band. The Denver gentleman had no commercial recordings, 
but left one 1996 live show document that was released five years after the recording on the tiny Absalom indie label, a live album called Introducing. Still, there were no record deals coming at the time, and the Denver Gentleman quietly disbanded. Jeffrey Paul would actually join 16 Horsepower for a short time, and the album Low Estate featured several Denver Gentleman songs, including their version of this song, The Denver Grab. Cessna and Frank Hauser Jr. would go on to form the amazingly frantic Honky Tonk from Hell band, Slim Cessna's Auto Club. Hauser left that band after a year or so and was replaced with Jay Munley, who helped the band evolve from what it was becoming, a novelty act, into one of the most ferocious and frightening Southern Gothic bands of all time. Other members of the Denver Gentlemen would go on to play in or form numerous other important bands to the Mile High's country gothic scene including Tarantella, Munley and the Lee Lewis Harlots, the Kalamath Brothers, and Devotchka. The scene was as figuratively incestuous as John Phillips was literally. The lore of the Denver Gentlemen grew to mythic proportions as these other bands garnered acclaim. In the early 2000s, Jeffrey Paul resurrected the band for some live shows and a new studio album. The performances and recordings were passable, but failed to capture the magic that was attributed to Denver's great lost band. One wonders how you can ever compete with your own myth. And so we were there for a lot of this. Maybe not the Denver Gentleman. Did you ever see the Denver Gentleman play? I did not. I saw Slim Cesta and 16 Horsepower maybe 15, 20, maybe 30 times each. Slim Cesta yeah. is one of the best shows I've ever seen every time I see him. And I saw Munley. Um, he actually worked at a record store in Boulder for a while while we were there. Really nice guy. Uh, I don't think I saw Devotchka unless they opened for one of those bands at some point, which they might have. Yeah, uh, Devotchka. I saw Devotchka a lot for a while. Probably after you left, they would just open for every middle to big size independent band that came through. Yeah, I probably saw both 16 Horsepower and, and Slim Cessna. More than five times each. Slim Cessna, I still will go see whenever I can. It is maybe the best live show I've ever seen. When you're watching him on stage, he appears to be like seven feet tall. He's wild, long arms, almost like Reed Richards from the Fantastic Four. And he's got this giant gold tooth and these Elvis Costello glasses. He's like an animation up there. He's really, really tremendous performer. And he's paired with Munley, who is... One of the starkest looking men I've ever seen. It's like they've been doing it forever. It's like they're connected. I mean, they're so different, but they just play together so well. It's it's just definitely go see Slim Cessna. And, and 16 Horsepower is great, too. I know you're a big Wolven Hand fan. And yeah, I like I like 16 Horsepower. Man, they were great as well. I remember one time we went to one of their shows, and um, he gets out on stage, and he takes the accordion, and it's compressed or whatever. 
and he starts pulling it out. And as he pulls it out, there's like this kind of old timey looking skull that you can only see when the, when the accordion's fully extended. And it was like the coolest looking thing I've ever seen. I've never seen like a crowd go so wild as when they saw the skull hidden in his accordion. You can easily make the case that pavement Yola Tango, or Yolo Tango, and the Silver Jews are among the most significant independent rock bands of the 90s. In a trashed basement of a communal party house on 14th Street in Charlottesville, Virginia, a small group of UVA students would gather to get messed up and make noise rock. Unbelievably, this revolving group of college kids would end up being integral parts of three of the most influential bands of underground music. David Berman would form the Silver Jews. Stephen Malkmus and Bob Nastanovich would form Pavement, and James McNew would eventually join Yola Tango. It all started with a fake European country. David Berman would make posters and album covers plastered with the name Ectoslavia. Eventually, led by Berman, roving packs of slackers would start making music under the flag of Ectoslavia, in the basement of the Red House were several cheap guitar amps, a busted drum set, and various found object instruments like oil drums resided. The Red House drew lots of alternative kids and artsy types into its allure as a refuge from frat antics and languid retro hippie scenes. An interesting side note was that Malkmus, Nastanovich, McNew, and Berman were all DJs at the college radio station WTJU 91.1. A young artist named Steve Keen was also a DJ there, and he would go on to be called the Assembly Line Picasso and paint famous album art for Pavement, Silver Jews, The Apples in Stereo, Soul Coughing, Mertzbo, The Klezmatics, and Charlottesville's most famous fecal flingers, the Dave Matthews Band. Berman had an infamous radio show called The Big Hair Show, where he crafted his poetic dry wit and showed an obsession for the butthole surfers. One classmate remembers tuning in and just hearing Berman endlessly chant, Corndog Roast, Butthole Surfers, Corndog Roast, Butthole Surfers. Turns out that was a real event, where the radio station would have a 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. marathon of blaring Butthole Surfer songs and handing out hundreds of corndogs. The event was shut down because of the horrendous smell. An official apology letter from the station read, WTJU will not be grilling things in the future. When I have my 2 a.m. butthole surfer corndog parties, nobody nobody shows up. It's just me. I usually have a butthole surfer corndog party after I've eaten the corndogs. <laughs> <laughs> no one except Berman really took these drunken jam sessions too seriously, as it was mostly just an excuse to get stoned, raise hell, and make as much noise as possible. The music was described as chaotic, freeform, primitive, unlistenable, and discardable. Distortion and caterwauling with pieces of classical music played in the background. They would record the session into a boombox and always be disappointed with how bad it sounded the next morning. Take a listen. Sixty point one percent. 
Nonetheless, there were clues that the members of this band might be more than just a group of college radio DJs. Bob Nastanovich remembers thinking that at one time, Berman was a better writer than any person he'd actually ever met, and that Malcolmus was already showing amazing guitar abilities. Berman wanted to take Ectoslavia in a more song-forward direction, and he would end up kicking out Malcolmus and Nastanovich, and who would go on later to form one-off projects like Lake Speed. Eventually, the Red House crew graduated and or moved away, but seeds were planted. Berman, Nastanovic, and Malcolmus would meet up again in New Jersey and start up Silver Jews and a reconfigured pavement, respectively, with each other becoming collaborative, unofficial members. McNew would also hook up with some Hobokenites and has been playing with them ever since. It's hard to believe that the seeds of such independent music luminaries lay in the grinding fucking around from a dilapidated basement in Virginia. talked a lot about Cleveland, Ohio quite a bit in past episodes, but we need to go back there again to discuss what might be the most legendary of all reverse supergroups, Rocket from the Tombs. They're legendary for a few reasons. First, they never released a studio album, so there's no way of quite knowing for sure what could have been. Would they have been able to recreate their insane live shows like the Stooges nearly did? Those live shows, by the way, numbered five. The band was around for about 14 months. The second reason they have highly regarded status is because of what the members did after the band split up. Two of them formed Perubu, and another two went on to recruit Steve Baders and become the Dead Boys. Third, their lead guitarist and one of their main songwriters, Peter Lochner, died at the age of 25 and is a legend all his own. We have an episode all about him that I hope you all go back and listen to. The band never got into the studio to cut any singles and certainly no albums. The closest they got was a radio broadcast on Cleveland's WMMS-FM, taken from a two-night loft recording made in February 1975. That recording, which made its way through many punk rock fans through the years, created quite the mythos. The recording itself sounds like shit. The clearest instrument is the hiss of the tape. But from that, you can hear a sound that just wasn't heard anywhere previously. It was loud and brash and confident. They sounded like they were each competing to be the loudest in the room, but without sucking. The band's music was a combination of influences from the two main branches of the band. Lead singer Crocus Behemoth and lead guitarist Peter Lochner had art rock leanings, and were proselytizers of Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, while the other contingent, Cheetah Chrome and Johnny Blitz, were diehard Kiss and Hawkwind fans. The combination of these two forces was an explosion of yet unheard proportions. The version of 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, which a year later would be Para Ubu's first single, is described by Julian Cope as psychotic reaction, 
played by Led Zeppelin's Afterbirth. Yuck. This tape is why many people think that Rocket from the Tombs might be the single greatest and most influential band to never make an album. personalities in the band forced it to be a band with a very limited lifespan. Croquis Behemoth changed his name back to his real name, David Thomas, and formed Pierre Ubu with Peter Lochner. They recorded several Rocket from the Tomb songs, but Thomas kicked Lochner out of the band pretty quickly. By that point, Lochner was getting more and more out of control with his drink and drugs and a brain that just moved too quickly. Cheetah Chrome and Johnny Blitz took their metal leanings with them and found a singer in Stiv Baders, who more represented what they wanted in a lead singer. Someone who could sing, I guess. Rocket from the Tomb had five members, and we've only as yet talked about four of them. Clearly those four ended up being the most well-known, but the other member, bassist Chris Bell, went on to form a band of his own called Saucers in 1977. They also played some Rocket from the Tomb's songs, the three offshoots seem to split up the material equally. Saucers is most important to me because of who was playing drums in the band, Mark Mulcahy, who went on to front one of our favorite bands ever, Miracle Legion. I have a Miracle Legion cassette from the 80s that has Perubu playing on it, and ever since I got it, I've always wondered how that came about, and the research for this show finally put all those pieces together for me. Whew, it was great. <laughs> so you had no idea beforehand i didn't know why they would be why they would be working together are they both from ohio no so when chris bell quit he moved to new haven connecticut which is where mark mulcahy is from rocket from the tombs did reunite for a show in 2003 with richard lloyd playing in lochner's place that lineup also released an album in 2004 called rocket redux consisting of Rocket from the Tomb songs recorded in a studio. In 2006, they started touring with a plan to release a new album of original material, but the next release from them wasn't until 2009, and it wasn't an original. Instead, they contributed a song to a Mark Mulcahy tribute album. By the time a new album arrived in 2011, both Richard Lloyd and Cheetah Chrome had left the band. They followed that album up with 2015's Black record, but neither release was much of a reunion with only two original members left in Thomas and Bell. Do you think they would have been as popular if they would have actually got an album recorded? Or has their, you know, has their story kind of helped bring forth this kind of legend? Not taken away from what the Dead Boys or Paraubo did at all, mm -hmm. but do you think like because it was kind of a lost band that they got more popular? 
I actually think both things are true. I think if they had actually gone into a studio and made an album based on the songs that they already had, and they had plenty of them, that album would have been amazing. It would have been better than the first Perubu album. would have been a lot of the same songs. I think it would have been a lot more rollicking, and I think it would have really stood the test of time. They may well have been just as legendary at this point. There's no way they could have made two albums. I think that there are just too many personalities in that band that just would not be able to work together for very long. Tonight, I think I'm gonna go downtown. Tonight, I think I'm gonna look around for something I couldn't see when this world was more real. At a party in college, I once remember talking to a girl and I kind of casually remarked that I wanted to make a trip to Lubbock. That's a good line. That's about actually how I would have tried to pick up a girl in college. She, a Texas native, looked at me with a horrified look and told me quite plainly that Lubbock is the armpit of Texas. Of course, I wanted to make a pilgrimage to the Buddy Holly Center, which I eventually did. Seeing the glasses that he was wearing when the plane went down was a truly moving experience. But I had another motive for traversing the bleakness of West Texas. I wanted to see the place where one of my favorite country bands, and possibly the greatest trio of country harmonizers, failed to launch. The Flatlanders were only around for about two years, and essentially had no critical success in nary a commercially released single. However, their sound was effulgent and haunting. A stunning mixture of sacred harp, cowboy songs, cosmic country, and early rock and roll. The songwriting, singing, and picking of Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Joe Ely, and Butch Hancock was nothing short of astonishing. The combination of equally distributed talent and a freshly formed band seems unnatural at the time. Though each would develop their own voice and much more fruitful solo careers. Still, the serendipitous unity that came from the middle of nowhere is stunning. The ghost of Buddy Holly was an ethereal presence in the lives of these young musicians. Buddy Holly's father bankrolled Gilmore's first recording session. Hancock grew up across the street from his childhood home. Joe Ely learned steel guitar from the same music tutoring company that taught a young Buddy. In the heart of conservative country, Lubbock was a small oasis for art and free thinking. Much like their bespectacled musical influence, the Flatlanders towed this line perfectly. When you went to Lubbock and saw those glasses, what was that like? So we were driving, and I had my wife and my, my daughter and my son, and we purposely was taking this path just so I could go to Lubbock. The museum really wasn't much of a museum. There was, there was a few things, but it was more like an art center, but they had one room and clearly the centerpiece was his glasses, and they were the actual glasses that they recovered from the plane crash. And they were just kind of sitting there on a stand, just Buddy Holly's glasses. And it was just kind of an amazing moment for me who really love Buddy Holly and think so much of his music. And the tragedy behind it was just kind of a powerful thing. I felt very similar. You were with me, but mm-hmm. we saw... John Lennon's glasses from when he was assassinated. Yep. Like on the cover of uh, Yoko Ono's Season of Glass. 
it's a very humanizing artifact. I had to pause there for a few seconds thinking about it. The John Lennon glasses really resonated with me even still. There's something about glasses that are so, especially those two, you know, if you think about glasses and rock and roll, you're not going to take long to get to Buddy Holly and John Lennon. Yeah, then be Elvis Costello and Mr. Peanut would be next. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Peanut did die recently, but I have not got to the museum that has his monocle. High school friends Hancock, Ely, and Gilmore found themselves back home in Texas after venturing off to various corners of the world, like San Francisco, Europe, and Austin. They started playing together at local clubs and music festivals. Rising from the ashes of the succinctly named Double Mountain Fork of the Brazos River Boys, they settled on the shorter name Flatlanders. Their voices were perfectly balanced. Gilmore's warbling tenor, Hancock's dry, Dylan-esque, and Ely's emotive straining. Country, folk, rock, each represented with no style overpowering. They added some crack local session guys and Steve Wesson on auto harp and musical saw, and Tony Pearson on mandolin, Tommy Hancock, no relation, on fiddle, and Sil Rice on string bass. The music had traditional bones, but with lyrics that surveyed modern life. Many call the Flatlanders the rebirth of Americana. Of course, they wouldn't be called that until many years later. They were barely heard while around in their original incarnation. Even as unknowns, people understood that they were listening to beautiful and substantial tunes. At an early appearance at the Kerrville Folk Festival, They were named one of the winners of the new folk singer-songwriter competition. The band was just well-received enough to garner some interest from a few middling labels. Various recordings exist, including an Odessa radio session and a Nashville studio session. The Nashville session was set up by their manager through both famous and infamous swindler and then Sun Studios owner Shelby Singleton. Singleton wanted to release the band on his Plantation Records label, which mostly existed to fill cheap bins at truck stops. In March of 1972, the band recorded an album's worth of material in Nashville. Singleton cut a promo single for the song Dallas, but when it failed to instantly be a success or to have any radio play, the label quickly turned their back on the band and scrapped the album that was already mastered had artwork, and was nearly ready for release. The album did get a microscopic 8-track only release as Jimmy Dale and the Flatlanders. It was hardly distributed at all, and more or less released just to meet contractual obligations. Here's the failed single, Dallas. Well, I came up to Dallas with a bright light on The band was dismayed, only played a few more gigs, and quietly dissolved. Of course, this normally would be the end of a band story, except that Ely and Hancock would start releasing fantastic solo albums that were critically hailed and commercially successful. 
Ely would also become close friends with Joe Strummer. Gilmore became his own sort of legend, still occasionally writing and playing, but spending most of the 70s studying with the Guru Maharaji in an ashram in Denver. In the 80s, each was an established and respected member of the alternative music scene, and even played some Flatlanders reunion shows. Then, in 1990, an authentic reissue of the studio recordings by Rounder Records called More a Legend Than a Band was widely regaled and showed the world the power of the Flatlanders. Since the release, the band's fan base has grown with more reunion shows, reissues, and even a new record. Green River has a pretty good claim to being the first grunge band. Combining punk's sneer, heavy metal sludge, and classic rock's drive into a ferocious blast of fun, gritty tunes, the band laid the groundwork that would make Seattle the center of the musical world a half-decade later. Lacking the experimental girth of the Melvins or the sonic sheen of Soundgarden, Green River stands out amongst their contemporaries simply for arriving first. Their debut, Come On Down, is considered the true first grunge record, predating both the Melvins and Soundgarden and even the seminal Deep Six compilation. Yet despite their importance in laying the groundwork for Rock's resurgence, Green River is mostly only known as the springboard for Mudhoney and Mother Lovebone, who evolved into Pearl Jam. In 1984, Mark Arm, Steve Turner, and Alex Vincent picked up the pieces from a bunch of Pacific Northwest punk bands. After Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard got fired from their respective bands, they were recruited. This band of misfits named themselves after an active serial killer. The band began touring and recording shortly after forming and quickly created a small following of fans who loved the sound that was equally chipper, ugly, and wanky, as if it was influenced by divergent likes of the Stones, Sabbath, Stooges, and the Sex Pistols. In 1985, they went to New York to record their debut, but the promotional tour was a train wreck, with the album being unavailable and Steve Turner eventually quitting because the band was getting too metal. Here's the title track from that debut. Even though they're often credited as being the first grunge band, I mean, what do you think about that statement? What What is grunge sound? I think most genres like that kind of bleed from one to another, and there's no actual first of anything. But if I were to label the first grunge band, I would say Husker Du. Yeah. 
They had the same influences. They were better, more talented musicians, better songwriters, and they would blow them off the stage. Even if nobody in Green River had ever even heard of Husker Du, it doesn't mean that they're that that sound that they created on like Zen Arcade wasn't what they were trying to, to capture. That's true. Yeah. They found more popularity back in Seattle and recorded an EP for a fledgling label called Sub Pop. 1986, Dry as a Bone was Sub Pop's first non-compilation release and one of the highlights of the early grunge movement that would soon explode. By the time they were recording their first full-length, Rehab Doll, the band was quarreling over its direction. Ammons and Gossard wanted to land a major label deal, while Arm wanted to remain independent. This came to a head at a show in Los Angeles, when Arm found out that he couldn't give his friends backstage passes. Ammons had reserved all the backstage passes for A&R men, most of whom didn't even bother to show up. The band essentially broke up, but tried to keep it together just long enough to finish Rehab Doll. It came out, but sounded like it was completed by a band that had already bled out. Mark Arm hooked back up with Steve Turner to start Mudhoney. Ament and Gossard started the glam grunge Mother Love Bone. When Mother Love Bone's lead singer Andrew Wood succumbed to a heroin overdose, they found a kid named Eddie Vedder and ended up going as commercial as their hearts desired. There have been a few one-off reunions, but Green River remains revered in the annals of Seattle Sound. Of course, the most fun thing about reverse supergroups is you never know when you'll see one. Being one of those people who saw them way back when. All the more reason to support smaller bands that you believe in. Reverse supergroups are still out there, we just don't recognize them yet. Recently, a band like Rodriguez, who was around in the late 90s and released only one sweet-sounding record. Must be waiting for me. I saw a bell, I heard a cannonball. Could be exaggerating, but it looks like waiting for me. You'd be surprised that in a few years, two members of that little known San Luis Obispo band would be two of the most prominent figures in the indie folk movement. Kyle Field of Little Wings and Matthew Ward, better known as M. Ward, or the non-sitcom star of She and Him. And of that relationship in She and Him, M. Ward says, it's not sexual, but musical as a motherfucker. M. Ward would also go on to join a bona fide indie supergroup, unsurprisingly, ironically, named Monsters of Folk, with Jim James of My Morning Jacket, Connor Oberst, and Mike Mogus of Bright Eyes, and Will Johnson of Centromatic. I always like to think Mike Mogus is from Lullaby for the Working Class, but Bright Eyes is more well-known. Their songs have been featured on the CW's Gossip Girl and the Starbucks iTunes Pick of the Week. Jiminy Cricket. And I believe it's pronounced Yim Yames, Joe. I think you're right. You're right. I meant to say Yim Yames. Of course, we don't have the time or willpower to cover all the reverse supergroups out there. Notables we skipped were Alex Kerner's Blues Incorporated that had at various times Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce from Cream, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts from The Stones, and was a veritable who's who of the developing British blues revival of the early 60s. Similarly, Shotgun Express once had Rod Stewart, Fleetwood Max, Peter Green, and Mick Fleetwood, 
and Camel's Peter Barden in a soft rock package. Also, there was the short-lived Manchester punk band, The Nosebleeds, remembered mostly for sporting Billy Duffy of The Colt, Vinnie Riley of Durati Calm, and noted fan of puffy shirts, celibacy, and casual fascism, Stephen Morrissey. Or New York's 80s sleaze merchants, the Honeymoon Killers, who morphed into Pussy Galore, which eventually diverged into the John Spencer's Blues Explosion and the Royal Trucks. All of these bands were prologues to something bigger. Sometimes its brilliance, uninhibited yet by fame. Sometimes it was a critical cutting of teeth in preparation for widespread exposure. Either way, it is fascinating to see how talent attracts talent, and how so many factors can thwart a young band's growth. Jail time, commercialism, failure, artistic differences, love affairs, drug usage, falling away, all can be death knells. We are just glad that occasionally we are left with some of the puzzle pieces that help us put together the origin stories of rock and roll's heroes and villains. Yeah, there were a lot that we were kind of torn about doing. Like, I I really wanted to find a way to fit in Amalgamated Sons of Rest because it had Alistair Galbraith, Will Oldham, and Jason Molina, but they were at their peak at that time, so we weren't able to do that. Yeah, maybe we'll come back and circle around and do some of the supergroups that are, you know, not the Traveling Wilburys, but some of the smaller supergroups. I know we talked about the record that Light in the Attic released with Alex Chilton and... Alan Vega? Yeah, Alan Vega and that other guy. Ben Vaughn. Yes, that's an interesting record. There's a lot of groups that kind of like supergroups, but never got them exposure that they you would have thought they would have got right right so weren't you talking about like you know we've very sadly lost john prine this week but didn't you find a super group that he was part of yeah and this is one that i didn't know about at all but they were called buzzin cousins great great name and it had john prine dwight yoakam joe ely johnny cougar mellencamp and author james mcmurtry which seems like a pretty great lineup a lot of very talented people, and Johnny Cooker was in there, too. What, what was the song like? It's really good. The one that I listened to today was called Sweet Suzanne. It sounded just like you would imagine those people all sounding or playing together would sound like. It was, it was really nice. I guess we'll put a clip in right now. Right now Look at the place I'm in when I think about things that I could have done It's impossible for me to pretend Well I see it now as the lights grow dim And the world starts to close its eyes I just wanted to say goodnight Sweet Suzanne When did, when did supergroups really kind of become a thing? I guess the late 60s with Cream and all that but it seemed like it kind of had a resurgence in the '80s, with the Traveling Wilburys and all that sort of stuff. It seemed, yeah, it seemed like this is probably a spinoff from about that time. It's almost like they all sort of started with that fake band that was just created as an article in Rolling Stone. I don't remember who was it Clinton Halen that created that or something. Remember with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and oh, Bob yeah. Dylan all playing together? That was just a 
The Mass Marauders. That was the name of that band. It seems like that's when things kind of like, hey, this is possible. These guys are huge. And it was really around there that it was sort of the beginning of rock and rollers getting old. So supergroups would be coming around. As bands sort of dissolved or or people left, if they couldn't make it on the, as a solo career, they would probably team up with others like um, Captain Beyond. Like the damn Yankees and... In Asia or The Firm. There's a bunch. I mean, there's more than you would ever think. And like you said, it's sort of a, a fine line to distinguish, like just people getting together and playing who are in different bands. Well, that's pretty much every band that gets famous is made up of other bands. But yep, I think there's something different when you've definitely jumped the shark and you're going to find a few other people to jump the shark and start a band with. Sort of like those oldie concerts or they'll just get a bunch of people who could probably never sell out anything by themselves, but if you put 10 people of them on a lineup, they have a lot better chance of people wanting to come see them. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. you got to make a career. I think it's time for us to play some songs. All right, my first song today is called What Happened to Me, and it is by David Thomas and the Wooden Birds.
right, that was David Thomas and the Wooden Birds with What Happened to Me, which is from their 1986 album, Monster Walks the Winter Lake, on Twin Tone Records. David Thomas is the Perubu singer, and in the early 80s, from 81 to about 87, 88, he was making solo records. The band Perubu was sort of on a break, not sure whether they were ever going to get back together or not, and he was making these kind of strange, esoteric, goofy albums. Most of the albums that he made had a really good cast of backing musicians, some from Henry Cow, for example, Chris Cutler specifically, who ended up playing on some of the pair Uba albums as well. And around 85 or 86, he starts bringing in pair Ubu band members like Ravenstein and Mimone. And then after that, this is one of the last ones of his solo for a while, he just switches the name back to Perubu. <laughs> so <clears throat> this one is the first one that had most of the Perubu guys back in it, backing him. And the song that you just heard is really bizarre waltzing, almost like a Tom Waits song from Frank's Wild Years. I think this album is pretty good. He's got a few really good solo albums, solo-ish, I guess. He always has a band behind with him, but I think they're good. They're almost like really strange Jonathan Richman albums, like if he were fronting Perubu. They're songs about bicycles and birds and just normal everyday things, but with just a strange take on them. Those really flew under the radar, too. Like, not really many... Yeah, you talk about them, but like not many other people ever talk about those solo records. No, no, they don't get promoted much. There was a box set called Monster of his five albums he made in the 80s, but I've never seen it. I didn't even know it existed until like about a year or so ago. All right, my first song is Calvin Johnson, Sandman, Time Zone LaFontaine, and Andres Jones with Highwayman. Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost her bubbles to my tree Many a soldier shed his life but on my blade The bastards hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive Sailor, I was born upon the tide, and with the sea I did abide. I sailed a schooner around the Horn of Mexico.
Highwayman by Calvin Johnson, Sandman, Time Zone, LaFontaine, and Andres Jones. The cover, of course, of the Highwayman supergroup that had Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings. Four pretty amazing artists. And I have that track on a tribute to Chris Christopherson called The Rising Cost of Living High and Loving Hard from uh, People in a Position to Know Records 2013. That is a label run by our friend Mike Dixon, who we're going to have an interview with very soon. That tribute album's awesome. It's got songs by Simon Joyner and Woodwand and just a really great overview of Christofferson's career and songs done in lots of different sorts of ways. But in talking to Mike Dixon, I found out that this song first came out on an, a solo record by Sandman the Rappin' Cowboy called Return to the Black Hole of Outer Space from 2006. And Sandman the Rapping Cowboy is a pretty cool guy. I looked into him a little bit today as I was researching. He's like a true kind of American troubadour. He can do country music. He can do hip-hop. He can do all that. And this song kind of shows it because it is a weird electro-country song. And it is kind of like nothing I've ever heard. As I was kind of going through the tribute album, I got to this song, and it was (laughs) just a bizarre fun track and then calvin johnson popped on during the johnny cash uh, verse and it was just great i loved it so definitely check out chris sand sandman the rapping cowboy gave us permission to play the song which is very nice of him we appreciate that and i would strongly encourage our listeners to check him out he's at www.rappincowboy.com no g just r-a-p-p-i-n the other two guys are real interesting too on the track Andres Jones was in a band called The Previous. He's also a author, and he was a one of the main actors in Nightmare on Elm Street. And Time Zone LaFontaine, besides having the best name ever, is a Asheville type guy. So we really appreciate them letting us play this track. And I thought for our supergroup episode, this would be perfect. That is such a great song. I had never heard it until you played it for me, and I love it. Yep. I can't believe I hadn't heard that before. It's it's awesome. So much fun. And we also should put a plug in for uh, P-Optic or People in a Position to Know Records. Go check out their website. They have so much cool stuff. Uh, It's one of those records that I didn't know I loved it until I had it. Now I just keep listening to it. And I bet a lot of that music on that label is like that. Yeah, they've got a lot of great stuff. We will be talking a lot about them when we have our episode where we interview Mike, as you mentioned. And... I know I have a bunch of their stuff, a bunch of their wooden wand stuff, especially. It's wonderful label. They do really aesthetically pleasing albums, if that makes sense. Artwork. Absolutely. Uh, my second song is by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and it is Death Is Not The End. 
Death is Not the End by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Came out on Murder Ballads 1996 on Mute Records. And this is a sort of supergroup song because it had, of course, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, but also had Anita Lane, Kylie Minogue, PJ Harvey, Shane McGowan. They all sang as well as uh, 
Thomas Wildner and Blixa Bargeld also took a moment at the mic. Of course, this is a Bob Dylan song. It was off his album, Down in a Groove. But I think, and I love Bob Dylan, I think Nick Cave absolutely owns this version of the song. It is beautiful. It's harrowing, the different singers. And it's a perfect song to finish a near-perfect album on murder ballads. It's kind of funny. It's the only song on the whole album that does. there's not actually somebody getting killed. So, But it's still all about death. Do you think it's more of a song of preparing to die or preparing to be a character in one of the earlier songs? I think you can interpret it that way. If you're going back to Dylan and thinking about that came out about the time of his religious albums... It wasn't one of his religious albums, it was about that same time. I think it is kind of like almost a spiritual type of spiritual in the type of way where it is actually this song about, you know, thinking about death as the start of a new journey, you know, whether that has, you know, religious connotations or spiritual or whatever. I think Nick Cave kind of flips that on his on its head a little bit and makes it almost like a joke or kind of a a tongue-in-cheek nod to all the people that just got waylaid in his album. Especially in that O'Malley's Bar, which I think is right before this song. Yes, it is. Yeah. Anyways, beautiful song. It's definitely sort of a supergroup song anytime Nick Cave and PJ Harvey and Shane McGowan are hanging out. And Kylie Minogue, too. Throw her in. All right. The final song for this episode is by Tim Rose. And the song is Long Time Man. Grab my gun 
All right, that was Longtime Man from Tim Rose from his 1967 debut called Tim Rose. And I have a version that was on Edsel Records. Tim Rose we talked about a lot earlier. He didn't sound like a really nice guy. He never had much in the way of hits for very long. Like this album had Hey Joe, which was a minor hit for him, huge hit for Jimi Hendrix. And he had his biggest hit of all with Morning Dew, the song that he also didn't write but claimed to, was actually written by Bonnie Dobson. And he had another hit with Come Away Melinda. But Longtime Man is one of the ones on the album that I I really like. I kind of go back and forth. I really like his songs, even if I don't really like him. I think that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Longtime Man was eventually covered by Nick Cave. After Tim Rose made a few albums in the 70s, he sort of disappeared. He wasn't making money. He didn't have a contract anymore. He became, at different times, he worked as a construction worker. He 
taught geography somehow. He was a Wall Street stockbroker, and he did some like voiceovers for commercials and even sang. But then Nick Cave was really important in trying to get Tim Rose back out of doing nothing and having no money. In... In 1997, he had Tim Rose open for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds on a tour in the UK. And in 1999, he produced Tim Rose's album Haunted. So he did a lot to try to get him back out performing and making albums. And Tim Rose ended up making one more album in 2002. And then he died. I like Tim Rose's voice a lot. I like how kind of dark and brooding and how much energy is sort of creeping underneath all the lyrics like it's ready to kind of pounce and i think nick cave, nick cave does a really good job of capturing that too when he covered it and those are our songs for this episode all right so we're going to finish off the trivia now and again i'm going to play five clips of music from super groups and what i would like is for you to name at least three members in the band and if you can also name the song that would be great too are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Track one. Just like a flower, they're growing wild. Got no mommy's kisses and no daddy's smile. Track two. Now it's Track three. With a packet of old love letters written by my true love's hand. Track four. first song is definitely the traveling wilburys yes and i'm pretty sure that was well i know it's not the first album so it's probably the second album and roy orbison was dead so the voices i thought i heard were dylan petty and jeff lynn i think those are the three voices i heard and i'm not 100 positive of the track i think it's called nobody's child 
It is. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Roy Orbison is actually featured on that one too. Oh, okay. Okay. So is that on the first record? It's on their second record, volume three. They must have had his vocals recorded earlier. Okay. Like maybe it was an outtake from the first record or something. I think just because I knew it wasn't on the first one, I just assumed it was on the second one, so I assumed he was dead. But anyways, the second song is definitely Brian Adams' All for One. And I know Rod Stewart's singing. I don't know who the third person is. I don't know if I got enough of the clip or what. And this is easily the worst piece of music we've ever played on this show, and it will always be. (laughs) It's Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting singing All for Love. So I think that was from the three, some kind of Three Musketeers soundtrack. It's gotta be. I had never heard it before or blocked it out. There's a video where they're all palling around, taking turns singing, and I sat through way too much of that. (laughs) I bet you did. The third song is, um, I think they're called Trio, um, which is Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris, and Linda Rodstad, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Okay, good. I don't know the song. Rose? Somebody's Rose? It's called Rosewood Casket, and it's it's a a really nice song, and it's a song that actually... Our pal Tex and I sang one night when we were living in all living in Boulder, and we were out walking around way w- too drunk, and we started talking to a homeless man and just hanging out with him, and we started singing songs, and this was one that all three of us sang, and it was really, it was really a, a, a nice time. Very nice. All right, the fourth song is "Babies on Fire." And I think that's from that record. I'm not remembering. It's a date, but it had Brian Eno. It's definitely Brian Eno singing. And I think that also had John Cale and Nico. And I think it had other people on it too, but those are the ones I'm pretty sure are on it. Okay. Yes. It's from the album called June 1, 1974. The album artist is Ayers, Cale, Nico, Eno. And on that song specifically, obviously Eno, Ayers, Cale, and Robert Wyatt are on it, which is kind of cool. I didn't even know Robert Wyatt, Wyatt was part of that. Other people who played on that album, Mike Oldfield, of all people. I had no idea he was on there until I Gosh, started. He shows up a lot, too. Yeah, yeah, he really does. It's real interesting, and it's a really good album. I never really paid much attention to it, but I like it. All right, and the fifth song, I don't... I swear it sounds like Nico Case is singing. So I'm going to say the new, the new Pornographers. It is Nico Case. Okay, good. But she and Katie Lang and Laura Veers recorded an album called Case Lang Veers, and that song is called Atomic Number. Oh, okay. Nico Case has a pretty distinctive voice, so I could pick that out. I just never even heard of that record. And there, it wasn't intentional that I included the songs Nobody's Child, Rosewood Casket, and Babies on Fire. That was <laughs> not because I'm locked in a house with two children. All right. I think that's it for trivia. Good job. You ended up doing as well as I had ex- expected when I was making this. That's sort of what I thought yeah. would come up. So I'm not too disappointed. We haven't done trivia in a while, so it was good, good trivia. Very on theme. All right. So first, we want to say thanks to our podcast network, Pantheon Podcast. Um, they, uh, of course, support us and... We appreciate everything they do. They've got all sorts of cool music podcasts to check out. And 
there's something for everyone. I was kind of looking through the feed, seeing what I've downloaded from them, and you know they have all sorts of kind of fun stuff, a lot of stuff about John Prine this week, and there's a kind of a, a super group of podcast presenters doing a roundtable discussion of Bob Dylan's new song. How the fuck was I not invited to that? I don't know. That was my first thought. As always, we want to encourage you to please go out and support local artists, local record stores, people who are deserving of your money. Uh, I know we mentioned a few, uh, Sandman, the Rapid Cowboy, people in a position, no records, but um, there's a lot of people out there who are really scraping by, so spend a little bit of money on somebody, some art. It really makes somebody's day, and I know it's hard out there, but... It's important to us, you know, and if anything, if we can show you some music that you think is worthwhile to spend some of your hard-earned cash on, then we've done our job, because that's that's what we're here for, is to help kind of spread the word, so. A lot of these artists don't have health insurance. I know this is kind of preaching to people who probably know, but anything you can do, especially if they happen to be sick and they have medical bills or they have jobs that they can't do now because they can't play in clubs, they can't have their record stores open. It's just really difficult. So anything at all that can be done is much appreciated by everyone involved, I'm sure. And a lot of a lot of them are jumping on and doing shows online, which is, you know, amazing of them to do and to support them like you would support them if you went out and see them. We really kind of need to pull together and it's it's not easy for anybody, but don't forget those people who might need it the most. All right, we got some social media. Yeah, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where we go by the handle Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Find us on Facebook. Email us. Our email address is podcast at gmail.com. Just contact us. We'd love to hear from you. And what's the thing about stars? Give us some stars. We haven't talked about stars in a long time. If you like the show, go to iTunes and rate us. It'll help more people see that the show exists. We would appreciate it. Future listeners may appreciate it, too. I think it is time for us to shut her down. Reach out and uh, stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Pantheon.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 